back to the Relational Grace Podcast, where we share the teachings of Pastor Nick Harris, who taught us that Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. I'm Jamie Russell, Pastor Harris's son. In this episode, Pastor Harris will tell us about another one of the six impediments to personal success, which is also the title of our current series. In the first episode, Pastor Harris examined the impediment of the negative self-image. This is the tendency people often develop to loathe themselves, to think less highly of themselves as they ought to think. It is to fail to recognize our true importance in the light of who we really are, the sons and daughters of God. Nothing will impede success more totally than this. In this episode, Pastor Harris will examine the second impediment to success, which is that of self-pity. It is related to the first, but the two are not the same, not even remotely. The second impediment can be an abyss, and some of the greatest people who have ever lived have fallen into this abyss. Those out there who have had the pleasure of seeing the movie The Darkest Hour have seen how Winston Churchill, as great as he was, almost plunged into this abyss. Millions of others have done the same thing and destroyed their lives. One of the greatest biblical examples of a man suffering from self-pity became one of the central characters in Old Testament history. In fact, he was the first of Israel's great prophets, and his name was Elijah the Tishbite. Now, please don't jump to any conclusions that Pastor Harris is simply teaching us again about some strange guy that lived 3,000 years ago. And also, please don't jump to conclusions that the life of this man had nothing to do with us. So with that, let's jump into the second episode of our series, Six Impediments for Personal Success, with this one titled, The Disease of Self-Pity. Now, my challenge for today is to show you what the story of Elijah, Elijah. Now, remember, there is an Elisha and there is an Elijah. We're dealing with the first of those two, which is Elijah. And I want to show you what Elijah has to do with you. And so this morning, I will begin at the top. You see, Isaiah lived in a world that was a lot like ours. A world which is difficult for us. A world where it is hard to succeed. Elijah's time was the same way. And that was especially true if you were a godly man or woman. If you were godly in the age of Elijah, you were going to suffer for it. And that situation is also being seen today. In fact, in the days of Elijah, godly people were despised. In fact, many of them were even killed. Sinful living was extremely popular. It seemed like the more wicked you were, the better off you were. Everybody was looking for the wickedest people they could find. Abject sin abounded everywhere. And this could be most clearly seen in the widespread practice of idolatry. In the day and time of Elijah, idols were being worshipped in almost every home and in almost every place of business. Now, in addition... Crime was rampant in the streets. Social injustice abounded. The poor were ignored, if not mistreated. But worst of all, the faith of the people was constantly being undermined. So this man, Elijah, decided to do something about the situation. He decided that he was going to stand up and be counted, even if he had to stand alone. He was going to have a voice. Now, as we all know, the British statesman Edmund Burke once said this, All that is necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. 
And if there was ever a true statement, it is that one. Well, let me tell you, Elijah was a good man. So he decided to do something to prevent the triumph of wickedness in his day and age. No matter what it cost him, personally, he decided that he was going to take action, and what he did in his action was to confront the king of the state of Israel. Now, that in itself may not have been so bad, but he also... now he. He also did something else. Do you mind if I say this? He didn't just confront the king, but he decided to confront the wife of the king. And that was bad. It's like being a pastor in a small town in Oklahoma and getting cross-eyed with the banker's wife. It's never a good circumstance. And to get in bad with the wife of the king was not a good thing. You see, the name of this king was Ahab ben Amri, but now the name of the queen, you probably know better. Her name was Jezebel of Tyre. Oh, you say, now I get it. This woman was Onri, and she was. Now, this man Ahab was evil, but we would do this woman Jezebel a favor if we only called her wicked. You see, she was an ill wind that blew across the land of promise. She had ordered the importation, now think about this, of thousands of idols as well as hundreds and hundreds of false prophets. In fact, these prophets had erected shrines to their chief god Baal on every high hill in Israel. And not only that, she was well aware that each of these idols and each of these prophets were a total affront to the God of Israel. She was hurling all of this in the face of Yahweh, Israel's God. Now, on the other hand, this man Elijah was sold out to this same God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he wanted those Israels, those Israelites, to continue to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he was determined this was going to happen. He believed that the practice of idolatry was destroying the fabric of the nation. And you know what? He was right. Idolatry was stealing these people's birthrights. Idolatry was stealing the people's blessings. Now the sad truth is this. Every man in Israel should have stood up to be counted. But you know what? None of them did. Why? The answer is quite simple. They were afraid. Of what? They were afraid of the queen. They were afraid of Jezebel. So why was that? What was there about this woman that made her so terrifying? Just this. It was her power and her willingness to use it to exterminate her foes. She never attempted to coexist with those who oppose her. She simply killed them. It took courage to oppose this woman. So as I said earlier, Elijah made the choice. He would oppose her even if it meant he had to oppose her on his own and if nobody else opposed her with him. And you know, God's people have to do this still. Occasionally there comes a time when we have to stand up for what we believe. And Elijah made a stand. In fact, he challenged, get this, 450 of Jezebel's prophets to a contest. 
one that would prove who God really is. Now, the question of the age was this. Was Baal the one true God, or was Yahweh the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the one true God? That's the issue. Well, the 450 prophets of the Baal accepted the challenge. Now, here's what's odd. Elijah gives them a leg up. He doesn't meet them on his own ground because do you know who Baal was? He was the god of the storm. He was the god they believed, the Canaanites believed, that made it rain. The god of lightning and thunder, the god of rain, the god who caused the crops to become fertile, the god who made the animals fertile. This was the great god of Canaan. So what is the challenge? He said, I want all of you 450 prophets. I want you to meet me atop Mount Carmel. And I want you to do this. I want to erect two altars. And I want two separate bullocks to be killed. And then I want those bullocks to be dissected. And I want them laid on each one of these two altars. You will have yours and I will have mine. And with this, he said, I want you to do this. Your God is the God of the storm. He's the God who rides the chariots across the clouds. He's the one that brings the rain to the land. I dare you to challenge him to make it rain. To send lightning and devour the sacrifice. There's the challenge. You do it. You challenge your God. Then I'll challenge my God. So the ground rules were agreed upon. The prophets of Baal were given the first opportunity. At sunrise, 6 o'clock in the morning, they began to call upon their gods. They cry out to the Baal for the next six hours. But you know what? By noon, nothing had happened. Skies are still blue. So they continued to petition the Baal. Three more hours. Three o'clock in the afternoon. Now, Elijah was not a very nice man. I mean, socially, he had his limitations. So what does he do? He says, boys, maybe it would help if you took some sharp stones and you cut yourself. If your God sees a little blood, that might res- he might respond. So they pick up dummies, pick up rocks. Begin to cut themselves. Here they are, they're bleeding, they're screaming, they're crying out. And then Elijah says, do you think that the Baal has gone on? Now, literally, this is what the Hebrew says. It says, maybe your God has gone on vacation, or maybe he has gone to relieve himself. That's really getting to the point, isn't it? He just mocks them. Now listen to his words that are found in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 26. Look at the screen. So they took the bull which was given them. They prepared it, called on the name of the Baal from the morning until noon, saying, O Baal, hear us. And then go on. One more verse. Can you pull up the next one? We'll see if we can. Maybe we can't. Anyhow, just believe me, okay? Now, uh, but, there, but here it is. But there was no voice. No one answered. And then they leaped about the altar which they had made. 
They're just carrying on something fiercely. And finally, what happens? They just give up in disgust. So now it's Elijah's turn. Three o'clock in the afternoon. You got this picture? Listen to the words of 1 Kings 18, 32 through 35. Look at this. Then with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Now get this. And he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seahs of grain. That's about two bushels. Then with the stones, he built an altar. Okay, go ahead. Verse 33. And he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, laid it on the wood, and said, Fill four water pots with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar. And he also filled the trench with water. Now, do you see, Elijah chose to dig this trench around his altar and fill it with water to make the task more difficult, not easier. He even drenched the seven pieces of the bullock with water until it was sodden. Then what does he do? He cries out to Yahweh, speaking the following words found in 1 Kings 18, 36 and 37. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near. Listen to his words. Lord God, which God? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and I have done these things at your word. I didn't do this on my own. Well, beloved, let me tell you a little secret. No sooner had these words come from the mouth of the prophet when, wham, out of the sky comes lightning. Consume the sacrifices. You know what? It was so powerful that it even devoured the stones of the altar. Now, obviously, the contest had been decided. How many of you have been to the place where that took place with me? Let's see the hands. Yeah, there's ten of you or so have been with me. Jim, you've been with me. As you can imagine, don't you think that Elijah was excited? I mean, he asked for God to send lightning out of heaven. The God of the storm can't send it. But Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, sends it. Now, unfortunately... Elijah made one false assumption. You know most of the trouble I have in my life comes from false assumptions. Huh? Am I the only one in this chapel that ever makes that mistake? Now, he had assumed that the people of Israel would hear about what happened on Mount Carmel, and they would rise up in mass and do what? They would get rid of this wicked king and his wicked queen. He would, they would rid themselves of Ahab and Jezebel. And a godly king would be enthroned. Well then, as Elijah saw it, the idols infecting the land would be destroyed. And a new day would begin for the people of God. And I'm glad to say, no, I'm sad to say. Let me make this clear. I am sad to say that none of this occurred. 
You know what happened instead? A bounty was placed on the head of Elijah, and a warrant was issued for his arrest. In fact, listen to the words of 1 Kings 19, 1 and 2. They're on the screen. Now look very carefully. This is important. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had executed the prophets with the sword. 450 of them are dead. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. Okay, we're going to get her take. That's what I love about the Bible. Something to say about it. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods, notice the little G, notice the S, so let the gods do to me, what gods is that? The gods of Baal, the idol worshipers. So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as one of them, that's the 450 prophets by tomorrow about this time. Tomorrow, old buddy, you're going to be dead. And when he saw that, he arose and challenged Jezebel and got in her face and said, I am the man of God. You shall not do this. Are you shaking your heads in disbelief of what I just said? Well, you should. Because here's what God's word really says. And when he saw that, he arose. Get this. And ran for his life. And went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Now, the scriptures make it clear, doesn't it? He fled for his life. No grass grew under his feet. Just as soon as he got the message, he took off running, and he didn't stop. And listen, it is a whale of a long way, all the way from Mount Carmel to Beersheba. I'm talking about 40 miles. He's doing a double marathon here, folks. And when he gets there, guess what he is? He's wasted. So what does he do? He crawls beneath a low-lying juniper tree to protect himself from the heat of the sun. And then Elijah did what he often did. He began to talk to God. In other words, he prayed. But now let me warn you. I do not recommend this prayer. When you pray, do not pray this prayer. I don't care how great Elijah was, you don't want to pray this prayer. It's found in 1 Kings 19.4, and here's how it reads. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. That translates out of Hebrew as juniper. And he prayed that he might... Somebody tell me what this says. He prayed that he might die. I don't like prayers like that. He prayed that he might die and said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life, for I am no better than my father's. Yes, beloved. This is a man who's become stupid with self-pity. He actually asked the Lord of hosts to kill him. After all, he requested of God that he might die. Now, listen, this is just, this just is absolutely ridiculous, isn't it? Let me tell you a principle I've learned over these past 50 years. And that principle is this. It pays to be careful what we ask God to do. Because he might just do it for us. But let me assure you, in the case of the prophet, he knew, God knew these were just empty words. And thank God God knew it. 
You see, if Elijah had really wanted to die, all he would have had to done is just stay where he was and Jezebel would have taken care of it for him. So I ask you this morning, what was really going on? What really was happening under that juniper tree? Well, I can assure you, it's actually quite simple. Very simple for the Hercule Poirot of all things biblical. Elijah was feeling sorry for himself. He felt like an abject failure. And the next statement proves it. Now listen to his words as recorded in 1 Kings 19.4. Now look at this. But he went a day's journey in the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die and said, It is enough. I just, I've had it. I just can't stand anymore. Huh? Ever been there? Everybody's against me. Oh my, my life is falling apart. It's enough. I've just had enough. Have you ever prayed an enough prayer? I have. Today we would say, God, I'm finished. I've had it. Huh? I'm not doing this anymore. Chris? Oh, she's gone, I see. Deacon? Have you ever heard your dad say, that's enough? I'm going somewhere else. Oh, yes, your pastor has been very guilty more than once of his life of saying, God, that's enough. No one's ever suffered like I suffered. Well, you see, this was the problem with the prophet. The circumstances of life were not going like he thought they would and like he thought they should. He believed that when he stood against Ahab and Jezebel and the 450 false prophets, that all of Israel would would react. They would uh, turn to him. And together they would overthrow this wicked king and queen. But events did not work out that way. And believe me me when I tell you, they rarely do. Do you know what I've discovered in my lifetime? I've discovered that when you do the right thing, when you really do the right thing, it rarely makes you popular. More than often, you get rejected. And when people get rejected, you know what their first tendency is? It's to feel sorry for themselves, to run and hide under some juniper tree. Listen, beloved, no one goes anywhere or does anything substantive in life feeling sorry for themselves. I put it right there on the screen. No one goes anywhere or does anything substantive in life feeling sorry for themselves. No one can claim any kind of victory over the circumstances of life laying prostrate under a juniper tree. I can promise you that. Self-pity, feeling sorry for ourselves, will not bring us success. As a matter of fact, it will limit our success. Now, once again, I can tell you that if you do the right thing the right way, you will not make friends. You will make enemies. If you work hard and you show show more initiative, and if you dare to be the best, the Ahabs and Jezebels of this world will try to put you down. You see, you and I live in an age and labor in a workplace that is addicted to mediocrity. Creativity, determination, and productivity 
are usually frowned upon. In almost every endeavor today, a quest for greatness is met with ridicule and scorn. But here's the key. God has invested every single one of us with all the gifts and abilities we require to succeed. God has placed the ability to succeed within you. We are tailor-made to achieve greatness. God actually designed us to succeed and not to fail. Did you know that? You're designed that way. You're designed for success. Please listen to Pastor when I tell you that. You're not designed to fail. But success in God's eyes is not always what the world sees as success. You see, in God's world, our success can be measured by asking ourselves one question. Did I do what was right? And doing what is right, are you listening? Is difficult today because we live in a relativistic age where there are no absolutes to guide us. We live in an age where rightness and wrongness depends upon how we feel about it. And to add to our dilemma, those of us who dare to accept absolutes are looked upon as being intolerant and narrow-minded. Well, you know my answer to people who accuse me of being intolerant and narrow-minded is, I welcome that critique. As a matter of fact, I am so narrow-minded that a mosquito could stand on the end of my nose and kick my brains out and never touch an eyeball. Because, you see, I'm convinced of one absolute truth, and that is God's Word is true, and everything else is wrong. That's a decision I made. If I didn't believe that, I would have never gone into the ministry. Now, let me tell you about Elijah. He should have expected the reaction he got, but he didn't. So he had to duck under a bush, feeling sorry for himself, feeling terrified of what was going to happen. He was filled with insecurity. He was filled with self-doubt. Can you see that? That's what's going on under the bush. You've heard me tell this story a million times. I'll see one new person. (laughs) I'm going to make you subject. (laughs) I was in Jerusalem. We were on a city bus, Mike Evans and I. We were coming up on the Joppa Gate from West Jerusalem. And there was a mythical traffic jam. I mean, it, I mean, when I say traffic jam, I, I'm just, it, it's, it, it's more than a traffic jam. It's a snarl. It's a knot. And we're sitting there on this city bus, and the city bus has been sitting there about 15 minutes. And the driver of this bus, in English, not in Hebrew, throws both hands in the air and shouts to the top of his lungs, No one has ever suffered like I suffered! I just wanted to go up and slap him. He reminded me of Elijah. No one's ever suffered like I suffered. Now, let me tell you something I've discovered about life. This is free. I'm not going to charge you for it. Of course, I don't charge you for anything. So, Only one person can determine how you face the future. And that person is you. You see, the temptation to seek the safe way, to avoid taking risks, to give up on our dreams, is forever surrounding us. 
And the difference between successful people and failures is this. Successful people keep their faith in God alive and their faith in themselves vibrant. Don't give up on you. You're important. Now, listen, I know most of you don't like Prince Charles. I do. But most of you don't, and that's okay. You know, everybody sees him as being perhaps what he is, but I don't you know. Sometimes I like people that other people don't like. But, you know, even if you didn't like him, if he pulled up here to go get a coffee next door over there, everyone in his chapel would leap up and race out into the parking lot to take a look. Why? Well, he's just kind of a tall, skinny, got got a long nose, doesn't comb his hair, big, I'm big ears. But you know what? You'd go out to see him. Why? Because he's handsome? No. You'd go out to see him because he's important. And what makes him important is he's the son of the Queen of England. Well, you are the son and daughters of Almighty God. And that spells important in any language. And people ought to get up to come to see you. You have possibilities. Don't ever believe the world when they tell you you don't. You know what they tell me all the time? You're too old. No, I'm not. I'm just reaching my... Prowess. Listen, we can and we must control the way we think. Because no one else can. We can and must control our emotions and our attitudes. In fact, here's what we have to do. We have to detach ourselves. You want my secret to successful living? Detach yourself from your circumstances. Just... Choose to look at them from a distance. See, we get so close to our circumstances that we develop tunnel vision. We don't see the forest for the trees. It absorbs, our circumstances absorb all of our lives. And that's exactly what Elijah had to do. God sent him deep into the desert. See, the Bible doesn't tell us everything God said. But that's why you have me to tell you what else. God said, get out from under that tree! That's not in the scripture. Well, I know that's what God said, because he got up and got out from under that tree. And God sends him deep into the Sinai. Well, I'm talking about another 120 miles. Down to this mountain. And God puts him in. Have I ever shown you my pictures of me in the cave of Elijah? I'm not saying. I'll have to show you those pictures. It's really interesting. But God sends him to this cave, and while he's sitting in that cave, God lets him see a violent windstorm. I mean, it's violent. And then God causes a colossal earthquake to shake the foundations of the earth. Then God sends a raging fire. He's looking down from the mountains, looking down at this fire as it rages. And then God did something spectacular. As he's looking at these things, he doesn't see God in any of them. 
he doesn't receive any kind of witness. But sitting there in the cave, God does something spectacular. He speaks to Elijah from the prophet's own inner person. The prophet hears a still, small voice that told him no matter how bad things may look, Raging fires, raging winds, raging storms, all those great earth-shaking events don't amount to a hill of beans because he's not alone. God is in him, whispering to him. Now, beloved, this is what I found. And listen, I'm at an end here, and I've gone five minutes over. That was my introduction. Here's my son. When I look at my circumstances from a detached viewpoint, I sometimes begin to see the positive aspects of those circumstances. I say, wait a minute. This isn't all bad. This may be good. How many times do we worry ourselves sick over a circumstance in life when the thing we fear doesn't materialize? Huh? I've done this a thousand times. You've heard me tell you, when I was a junior in high school, I borrowed a guy's truck and had a trunch clutch in it, trunch, uh, truck clutch in it. Well, I went to back out of the parking space, and that clutch proved to be a little much for me. And I ran into the front of a guy's car. Well... I go home, I don't sleep a wink. I mean, I do not go to sleep. I've got to tell my dad. I don't know how to tell my dad because the rest of my life is probably going to be shaped by this moment. I've got, I am so close to that circle, all I can see is that dent in front of that car. We sit down at the table and I said, Dad, I did something terrible last night. He said, Son, what did you do? Dad, I was driving this guy's truck and he had a truck clutch in it and I wasn't used to it. I popped the clutch and I hit this. Dad looked at me and he said, that's why we have insurance. And then he goes on and eats breakfast. I looked at him and said, I stayed awake all night for that? Listen, let me share something. When I face a problem in life, I ask myself four questions. I've listed them for you this morning. I want you to have them because they're important to me. I ask myself these questions and it changes everything. And I promise you it will work for you too. Now here are the questions first. Does what I face threaten my relationship with God? If it does, I need to be concerned about it. If it doesn't, I need to wipe it out. Secondly, does it threaten my family? If it does, I need to deal with it. If it don't, doesn't, I need to let it go. Does it threaten my life? If it doesn't, let it go. And fourthly, and here's the big one, how important will this be for me ten years from now? Most of the things that I feared most in my life, I couldn't even remember they happened. I've forgotten all about them. 
But boy, did I tear myself halfway in two for several days, and maybe even several weeks or several months. Don't do that. Don't let those things dominate your life. There's not one thing in those four questions that contributes to our uh, living. In, in, you know, if you if you can answer these questions, you're going to be good. Now, it's an old cliche, but it's absolute truth. So, how many times has Dad had to say this over the years? When the going gets tough, we know it, don't we? The tough get going. Sometimes you just need to get up. Reject the temptation to crawl under the juniper trees of life and feel sorry for yourself. But remember the words of your New Testament. You ready for this? Greater is He that is in you than He that is in the world. And beloved, that is my teaching for today. (laughs) Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. If you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to connect with Ariel Ministries on Facebook and Instagram and subscribe to our email list at arielministries.com. That's Ariel spelled A-R-I-E-L. We look forward to keeping you updated on upcoming episodes and projects. If you would like to support the missional efforts of Ariel Ministries in Thoraka, Kenya with Each One Feed One, we'd like to remind you that 10% of all donations to Ariel Ministries will support this missional effort. Visit arielministries.com give for online donations and other methods of giving. To learn more about the Thoraka mission, you can visit arielministries.com missions. You can also listen to episode 26 for a deeper dive into how our relationship with Each One Feed One and the McCarter family started over 35 years ago, where we are today, and where we're headed in the future.